everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey. Undead Nogrider. <laughs> the new zombies were so loud. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. On today's episode, we will be discussing the new set of performance goals that have just come out fresh off the press from CISA. Uh, we'll go into uh, Google's update, or at least uh, affirmation of their support on a relatively new bill that's just been introduced into the Senate. And we will end with an analysis on a pretty interesting, kind of cool, novel piece of malware and some of the ways that it's spread and evolved spreading. Uh, with that, though, let's go ahead and plug ourselves in. <laughs> Charging. 2% battery. Just like my laptop. So this first story starts back in July of last year, actually. And I'm pretty sure we talked about this when it came through, uh, where the White House signed a national security memorandum uh, that basically required CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, haha, got it right that time, uh, in coordination with NIST to develop a set of just baseline cybersecurity goals that would be consistent across all critical infrastructure sectors. Hey, Mark, what's NIST? The National Institute for Standards and Technology. Thank wow, you. Wow, look at that. You're rocking it today. Anyways, oh, sorry, easy keep one. going. It's, so CISA is an issue because it's the... It's it's got like security in it twice. I know centered. it's kind of weird. And anyways, <laughs> whatever. Um, so the purpose of this memorandum it wasn't to develop a new framework. So NIST is typically responsible, or at least participates in developing cybersecurity frameworks, which are like the the high level abstract view of what you should be doing as an organization to secure yourself. They already do a really good job of that. The issue is. Uh, CISA and the government and private organizations realize that there's a decently large jump to go from a framework to actual cybersecurity in practice. And a lot of organizations, especially smaller ones, which exist in the critical infrastructure sectors, don't necessarily have the expertise or executive buy-in or a way to explain that jump from a NIST standard framework to a, here's what we need to do for our company. Um, so the purpose of this memorandum and these goals was to kind of bridge that gap. And so last week, CISA actually published their cross-sector cybersecurity performance goals, or CPGs, as they're calling them, um, as a basically optional set of guidelines to help bridge that gap between those standardized frameworks and practical implementations. Uh, the director of CISA, uh, Jen Easterly, wrote a pretty decent forward for these sets of goals, explaining the purpose and reason for them. There's a couple of good quotes out there I think we should share. So she says, um, quote, it became clear that even with a comprehensive guidance uh, from sources like the NIST cybersecurity framework, many organizations would benefit from help identifying and prioritizing the most important cybersecurity practices. So basically saying that the framework does a great job of, here's all you should be doing, the reality is like no organization, no organization, especially small ones, can just go, all right, let's do everything. You have to have a prioritized list. It reminds me of Australia's cybersecurity essential aid, which I, I think I may have mentioned on the podcast, if not with you, Mark, maybe with one of our Australian guests when you were out. 
but it's the same thing like the what is the AASCA it's like the UK's version of the Australia cybersecurity whatever uh, but they have a big set of cybersecurity controls that are all the things you should do but like you say it's a lot so the essential eight is picking the eight core things that any SMB should do and the way that they pick the eight is those eight they say fix 80% of the threats and the last 20% is by all the other extra stuff. So I, I agree. I like it when you take, you need to give baby steps to less mature, secure organizations. Give them the critical things they should do first before they they start to get into all the really deep controls. So I think it's a smart thing to kind of give people a, you know, this may not be all the things you should do, but this is the most critical stuff to do first. If Australia didn't name that the Australian security set, then they missed a grade A opportunity for an acronym. <laughs> Australian secure uh, NSS. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> or ASO. Oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I'm glad I said NSS because I kind <laughs> of, uh, I didn't have to censor myself with the production beat. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, another You're such an it. NSS, Mark. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Aren't they like defunct now? Anyways. Yeah, they are. They are defunct. Because uh, so they were the other. Anyways. I'll shut up. Anyways. Yes. Uh, moving on to another quote that I thought was interesting. So she said, quote, the CPGs, so the uh, cybersecurity performance goals, uh, strive to address this need by providing an approachable common set of IT and OT cybersecurity protections that are clearly defined, straightforward to implement, and aimed at addressing some of the most common and impactful cyber risks. So like you said, like the whole point is to like give someone at least a, a foundation to go off of. And they designed it all to be easily readable and explainable too. I also like the the admittance, but the, but the mention that this, this is the critical infrastructure performance goals, and yet they point out that both IT and uh, I think we've said it before, while there are nuances and differences, now that OT, operational technology, things like plant machinery and stuff like that is, is connect, network connected, a lot of the security is similar. So it's nice that even though these are critical, they're, they're focusing on what is it, the 16 main categories of critical infrastructure this is also a good set of you know uh, goal things to do for for normal it organizations too i would think oh 100 percent is like i went reading through all of them and they are i mean it's like to us as you know seasoned cybersecurity practitioners what are what exactly it's all like <laughs> obvious stuff but like it's not for us it is for small organizations that need help explaining some of these to, let's say, like executives on a team or um, other individuals within the organization to say this is why we need to do it and some actual tips on how to implement some specifically the, the small organizations that don't have a security professional, their IT admin, you know, plays a plays a security professional on TV part time. Uh, so yeah, no, I get it. And by the way, critical infrastructure, you might think, oh, well, that's really small businesses. We're talking critical infrastructure. There's little power utilities and townships that are just like the smallest of a small business. So I, I would argue that even OT folks sometimes, like you say, not for the seasoned security professional, but for the organizations that don't have that to get started. 100%. So like at a high level, like this document, it's like a couple dozen pages. 
And it goes through, I think, like eight different areas from like authentication security to data security to governance and uh, risk assessment, like that sort of stuff. And they've actually broke it out really well for each of the topics. Like at a high level, each goal has a few common components. There's a outcome, which is the ultimate security outcome that it's striving to enable. Uh, there's the TTP or risk that it's addressing. Um, so either a primary set of MITRE attack TTPs or the set of organizational risks uh, that would, as they say, be rendered less likely to, to, or impactful to the organization if the goal is implemented. There's a security practice, so the actual mitigation. So again, frameworks, they tell you this is what you need to do. This is the actual like how to do that kind of meat and bones of this goal. Uh, the scope, so the actual set of assets that are uh, an organization should apply this goal to. The recommended action, a specific approach to implement it. And then in some cases, they had references to like the NIST cybersecurity framework too. Like as an example, one of them in there uh, was for the goal being separating user and privileged accounts. The outcome, they said, make it harder for adversaries to gain access to administrator or privileged accounts, even if uh, common user accounts are compromised. The TTP is the MITRE attack at T1078, so valid accounts. Uh, they included the ICS one in there as well, too. The scope is all IT and OT assets were safe and technically capable. And the recommended actions are just no user accounts should have admin or super admin privileges at all times. And admins should maintain separate user accounts for all actions and activities not associated with admin role business. So basically saying use a normal unprivileged account for like email and web browsing, save the admin or super user account for when you specifically need those actions. Don't use that all day, every day. So again, like you just said, like 101 stuff, but it does a really great job of breaking out this like this idea from a framework and saying, here's how you actually do it, some practical tips. And there's like a hundred of these in there. Uh, makes it really easy for anyone, just tech person, security person, whatever, to take this and say, here's what we should be doing and here's like a jump start on how to actually accomplish it. So I think this is fantastic. Like, yes, it is CISA. It's supposed to be geared towards critical infrastructure, but I mean, like you said, anyone can use this at all. doesn't matter if you're critical infrastructure or not. I, I think it's fantastic too. My, my skepticism isn't the content or them putting this out. It's will, will it actually, will people do it? Because I, if I were just putting on my cynical cap, there's lots of security frameworks that exist already. You know, the CIS controls and uh, NIST has their own before this, you know, uh, there's uh, ISO's ISMS, you know, internet, or I'm sorry, information systems, or am I getting right? Information system, systems, information security management. management. Oh my God. Corey, yeah. aren't you like a, a <laughs> yes. CISSP? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, we run ISMS and I always forget the acronym. But there's there's a ton of frameworks. And while I do, I agree with you, they're actually the the way they describe the tips with, you know, they're at the practical, the the outcome, the scope is all very well put. There's so many guides out there that have very similar things and yet small and medium businesses and it, small uh, critical infrastructure energy companies still have been failing this for years and years. So I love that they put this out. I think it's a fantastic resource, but I think, uh, am I incorrect in the beginning? It says voluntary. <laughs> so 
no matter how if you have 12 great guides and no one's following any of them will a 13th great guide change anything so uh, i think it's fantastic i noticed at the beginning it's voluntary and i i think at some point you got to force certain certain types of verticals to do things you know i i i think they're continuing to be nice and hoping people do the right thing and maybe this guide will change some people but, i think uh, in critical infrastructure they are clearly moving towards more forceful requirements yeah like maybe I, not I, following I, this guide but following a standard like i mean what is it 30 hours 24 hours mandatory reporting of incidents now if you're a critical infrastructure it, yes i think they're getting there but if you read the actual cisa release i i you know they do mention voluntary performance goals so i i i think until they remove some of the voluntary uh it's another fantastic guide but good guides have existed before too. So we'll but if see. You're any, if you're any organization and maybe you're having trouble like getting buy on for some or explaining like why you need to follow some framework or even just 101 cybersecurity stuff, this is a great tool to at least give you a little bit of ammo and help explaining some of it. And the CPGs in particular, you know, the having that initial minimum set to get you started if you're trying to take a small bet at, at a time. I also recommend looking at Australia's essential aid, even if you're not in Australia. But the good thing about that is is when you see the full sets of controls and guides, it feels overwhelming if you're uh, new to security. So having a little bit that you can bite off at a time is nice, and this might help there. And the biggest thing is like just starting somewhere. like. Whenever you hear someone talk about adopting a framework, it doesn't mean adopt it all at once. It means just start using it where you can and then build on it. Like cybersecurity isn't about being perfect. It's about making con constant and continual improvements to just get to a better place over time. Exactly. Um, so moving on to the next story. Uh, so last week, Google published a blog post basically affirming their support of the U.S. government's efforts to advance open source software security. And so they specifically made this blog post to talk about the Open, so the open Source Software Act, uh, which was just introduced into the Senate last month. Um, so this act backing up is a, it's a bipartisan bill, and it's all around proposing this kind of framework to guide the federal government and by virtue of their contractors um, to improve their use of open source software and ensure security around those interactions. So some meat and bits of the bill uh, directs CISA again. Man, CISA is getting all powerful these days uh, with a lot of stuff falling under their purview, which is good. Like they're actually a pretty dang good organization to work with. Um, but anyways, uh, so it directs CISA to perform outreach and engagement around open source software security. Uh, have them assist in coordinating vulnerability disclosure in open source software components, work with NIST again to create and update annually a framework for assessing risk of open source software components, work with NIST to also create a framework for open source software assessments that must be used by all open source software components used directly or indirectly by federal agencies, share the results of those assessments publicly, and then hire open source developers to identify ways to mitigate software risks. So the bill sounds pretty good from a, like from a holistic approach of they're recognizing this need that in open source, there's an issue with it's all volunteer based, basically. Yes, some get like sponsorship from major organizations that help back some of the components. 
Um, but for the most part, like with a lot of these components, especially ones that are widely used across the internet, it's just some dude or a couple of people that are working on it voluntarily as a side job. And they don't necessarily have the time to say, implement best practices with software development for this component or react to every single security weakness that comes through, even just maintaining dependencies that, that library may uh, come on. And so the bill, and as we'll discuss in a bit, like Google's blog post recognizes that it shouldn't necessarily all fall on that maintainer to maintain the security of the program. Like it needs to be this distributed effort in order for it to actually succeed. So in their blog post, Google noted that open source software uh, supply chain has se uh, several seemingly simple questions. Man, several seemingly simple. That's a <laughs> good alliteration there. Red, uh, that are leather, yellow, leather, red, <laughs> leather, yellow. Questions that they, they should be simple to answer in practice, but in reality, they're actually difficult to answer. Things like, does a project contain known vulnerabilities? Are the project's maintainers and community following security best practices during software development? What open source dependencies are part of this particular piece of software? And how secure was the distribution of the supply chain? As I was reading those questions, the one question that was left out was kind of what you said before. Like it, you said what I think is one of the bigger problems with securing open source project is does this global widespread open source project, is this global widespread open source project only maintained by one developer? <laughs> I, I, You know what I mean? So answering even the questions you mentioned is easier if there, you, you, people imagine that something like uh, OpenSSL, by the way, which I think six years ago was only a few maintainers, but despite the fact that it was huge, everyone uses it. Uh, I think, how can you even answer any of those questions when some of these really widespread popular open source packages don't really have as big a team as you think? I mean, pr people probably imagine everything's like Apache, where <laughs> Apache actually is a company with a big team of maintainers, but there's so many projects. So yeah, I agree with these questions that Google had, but you hit on one earlier, which I think is a big one, that there's some pretty big open source projects that are used in all kinds of software and hardware platforms that they're not even being maintained anymore by the small maintainers that got them. So how can you even get to answering these questions about infrastructure and vulnerabilities, et cetera? There's a really good example of like something you were just hinting at there. Uh, so in the world of JavaScript, um, so there's constantly new versions of JavaScript and uh, new features that come out over time. I think we're on version, what, like eight point something now of JavaScript's main uh, I don't know, framework, I guess would be the right word. Um, and so as these new features come out, like you still need to be able to support older browsers that maybe don't get updated because their users just don't install updates, whatever. So there's this JavaScript library called core.js, uh, core and its whole job is to do what's called polyfilling. So it sees a new feature and it makes it work with old JavaScript and browsers. And it's maintained, or at least was maintained by a single guy. Things got like 26 million downloads every single month or every single week maintained by a single guy, and that guy was arrested and put in an 18-month prison sentence for something unrelated to this. So for an 18-month period, this 26 million download a week library used all across the internet had no one to actually be able to maintain it because he was in prison. 
And like, that's one example, but I'm willing to bet like, there's, there's been libraries many. used yeah, everywhere where like the maintainer just disappears off the face of the earth and now no one's able to continue. Although I like that example. I mean, what's, what's better than the guy goes to, I mean, I feel bad for him, but the guy's in jail, so he can't really focus on security of this super popular platform. <laughs> exactly. And with a lot of these things like JavaScript specifically, I know this because I do a little bit of JavaScript dev. Um, like these libraries, it's not like you use CoreJS in your application. It's you use this other library that somewhere down this dependency tree uses this one. And so if it's that widely used and that buried down the dependencies, you may not even know that it's not being updated. You may not necessarily know that there's like vulnerabilities in that that you need to address if you're not specifically looking for it. This is the issue that's so difficult to solve with a lot of open source libraries and programs is that it's just it's a spider web of dependencies and not a lot of time or resources to be able to address some of these issues. So in Google's blog post, they said, quote, given the primary volunteer driven or primarily volunteer driven nature of the open source community, we cannot expect open source software developers to shoulder the full burden of advancing software security on their own. And they later went on to say to get to a future where the burdens of security is shared, Google says we need freely available automated solutions like infrastructure that prevents tampering by default uh, when software is being built and released, advances in vulnerability discovery and management that automate finding, tracking, and fixing bugs for developers, and seamless connections across all sources of security data and tools for analysis uh, so customers can have meaningful insight into the security of their software. So a blog post is basically saying, we support this bill and advances in open source software security. It's also a little bit of a raw, raw go us piece. Here's the millions and billions of dollars that we're giving back to the community for. I do think it's cool that they gave $100 million to the Open Source Software Foundation. I mean, they're putting money where their mouth is. I also got to admit that I, I like that they... You know, I'm sure you're going to embarrass Pop Pop Cory with this closed Apple ecosystem, but I'm actually an open ecosystem person. Uh, I do often argue the security value of closed ecosystems, but I don't. I don't want. I would rather have security in an open environment where people could do what they want with with the hardware or software that they they wrote or had. So I really like the idea of open source. Always have and. So, you know, I think it's cool. I mean, the whole reason Google and others want to support it is to be is collaboration, is to have everyone to be part of this community. And open source security software is one of the best things where people from different vendors and companies can come together and, and, and create something that protects everyone. So I love the idea. Yeah, you're right, it's rah-rah, but shoot, they did put a hundred million towards uh, open source software improvements, so. Uh, I, I would be asking for a pat on the back too if I had donated a hundred million dollars. <laughs> and the thing I like about this bill they brought up too is that it's not just imposing like you know rules and regulations. It's also giving empowering CISA to help as well too. So they're going to help you know guide the federal government to be more secure as they use these, but they're also going to have resources to try and address and identify some of the issues along the way yeah. too. And I think it's a place, it's a shadow that a flash night lead needs to be shined because as, uh, as one of the reasons I and others love open source is the idea that it could be more secure if a lot of eyes were on it, but a lot of eyes aren't on it. So I'm glad 
the you know you and I have talked about that for a long time. Is open source really more secure? Well, theoretically, it could be. Probably not, actually, because of all the business dynamics we talked about. Uh, so good to shine a light there. Yep, hundred percent. We'll see where this bill goes. It does seem to have a decent amount of support, and clearly, it's got some private organization support too. So. Before we get off this, by the way, Mark, just since we're talking open source, I'm sure you're saving this for next week where we'll actually have detail, but it's probably good to point out to the listeners tomorrow, uh, we recorded this uh, you know, the week before you're hearing it. And right now there's a pre-announcement of a critical vulnerability in OpenSSL 3.0X and above. So nothing below uh, OpenSSL 3.0, but everything above it. Uh, we know nothing about it, uh, but some are comparing it to Heartbleed, uh, and it's the first critical uh, vulnerability in OpenSSL, I think, since 2016. And uh, as you listen to this on Monday, it shouldn't be a fix for it, I think, uh, Tuesday, November 1st. So while we're talking open source, that is the type of widespread package you'll find everywhere. So just get ready for tomorrow to be looking for that. Uh, I presume we might talk about it next week. We'll see. But have an I eye have out a for it. Strong feeling we probably will end up talking about it next week. If either saying, "Oh my God, the sky is falling," or "Wow, that was nothing." Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll probably make we'll make fun of them. But the pre-announcement is is different. I mean, when they're pre-announcing that a patch is coming, it usually means it's one you want to get quickly. Yep. So we shall see. I imagine that our, uh, I mean, WatchGuard's engineering team already has the the wheels spinning. So we'll see. It's going to be a very exciting week next week. Like you said, first critical vulnerability since since Heartbleed in 2016. Yeah. At least it's not releasing on Halloween, man. That would be extra spooky. But the day <laughs> after. That's right. Happy Halloween, everyone. Um, so rounding out today, uh, there was a cool blog post by by Google picked up by some other news sites on a the activities surrounding a, I guess, not new, uh, relatively recent, though, uh, malware family called uh, Raspberry Robin. So first off, yeah. the name, a bit silly. I think it comes yeah, from the organization funny. that found it. Uh, so it was back in May of 2020, the security firm Red, Red Canary, Canary. Uh, yeah. reported on a new-at-the-time worm that they called Raspberry Robin. And I think, by the way, it probably wasn't well-known. Like you're saying, it, it's new to us now for reasons that will make it more interesting but back in may it seemed like a pretty low risk threat as yep. uh, some of the things you talk about not low risk but just it, it's not something that would spread widely with its initial capability anyways yeah so they originally found it spreading exclusively using uh usb drives so basically the drive would contain a windows shortcut dot lnk file that's disguised as a folder so i'm changing the icon of it Early versions of it had a generic file name like recovery.lnk. Uh, recent ones used the brand of the USB drive, so like scandisk.lnk, um, where with some of these thumb drives, uh, if you've configured your Windows computer to auto run on insert or mount of removable storage, it will automatically execute that LNK file, which enables it to ultimately load up malware. Even if you don't have auto run enabled, like by using this social engineering, by disguising it to look like a directory and maybe tricking someone into double-clicking it, that's enough to let it get through as well, too. Um, and by the way, that USB spreading is my is what I was alluding to. On one hand, USB spreading is dangerous because it's something that people think of less, so it can happen. But just by pure volume of widespreadness, 
USB spreading slow and not guaranteed. You know, it's not like a network spreading, which is, can be automatic and quick if you're taking advantage of a exploit. So I, I think the initial USB vector of this might have made it kind of a small volume thing, but there are My probably updates. My gut tells me that they had like a, like a decent, like I, there's no way it's 100% effective, but I have to imagine like the efficacy of something like this has got to be halfway decent. Like put yourself oh, yeah, in the yeah. shoes of a an untrained person. They get a thumb drive in the mail. Like, no, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I think everyone that gets a thumb drive and puts it in would probably get infected even if they had to do the user interaction version of it because they didn't have auto run enabled. But by, by its very nature, it's not like a network based. I can do hundreds of thousands of IPs a second USB, I have to get a USB key to a victim. So I actually think of USB sometimes as more sophisticated targeted attacks. It's a great vector of attack, but it doesn't tend to be headline malware because it doesn't go to a widespread scale if it's just using USB. Uh, as soon as it starts doing other things, though, maybe that, and maybe maybe you'll have updates to tell us why this is becoming more, more widespread or, or more yeah. interesting. So they noted that it initially used this like social engineering method, whether it be the physical drive itself or tricking them into doing additional actions once they plugged it in. Um, Microsoft originally published their own analysis of it earlier this year too, that had some details on like what happens after that LNK file executes. I highly recommend you go dig it up. It's pretty interesting of some of the living off the land techniques it uses to ultimately load malware too. Um, but just last week, Microsoft published a blog post detailing Raspberry Robin's evolution, as you've hinted at, Corey, and its connections to the wider malware ecosystem. So back when this all started in May, it looked like it was just a USB worm that didn't really do anything. Like it could load up this malware. The malware is effectively a dropper. But at that point, it was just it was a worm. It wasn't like downloading ransomware. It wasn't downloading a Trojan. It was just sitting there. Since that time, though, it's become much more prolific. Um, so they've identified a link between this Raspberry ma uh, Robin malware and another dropper called Fallpod. Um, both were found delivering the same JavaScript backdoor called Fake Updates. Um, they had similar TTPs for launching malware uh, as Raspberry Robin and using some of the same living off the land techniques like lolbins, living off the land binaries, basically using tools like MSI Exec and Run DLL on Windows in order to load up malware. Um, in a slightly more, I mean, most endpoints like strong endpoint protection these days is on the lookout for this type of activity, but maybe some legacy protections wouldn't notice a library being sideloaded using run DLL, who knows. Um, Microsoft also found additional links between Raspberry Robin and the Drydex banking Trojan. So now they're seeing it drop remote access Trojans on the systems and the latest infections deploy Cobalt Strike and eventually lead to Clock Ransomware. Um, all of them lately have been using what they call hands-on keyboard attacks. So it's spread not necessarily through USB at this point. They found it through other mechanisms too. And then once they have this infection, an actual attacker is, quote-unquote, using it to hack an organization. By the way, that might go more with the target. Like, like I said, I don't, I'm don't. i not underplaying USB-type attacks. or, or it, it, To me, they're kind of a sign of sophisticated targeting. Uh, it's mostly saying they're not widespread, but everything you said, hands-on, you know, lateral movement, this, it sounds a little more targeted, right? Uh, they're mm -hmm. not trying to automate as much spread, automate as much infection and con command and control, but they're actually trying to, I mean, with USB, you definitely have to target in some way. 
And then if you're hands on, they're they're manually looking for something. So, you know, as much as I'm saying this probably didn't make the news as far as widespread everyone seeing it, it does seem a little more sophisticated in general, especially with living off the land techniques, too. Yep, they had some big takeaways from it. So the main one was Raspberry Robin, like other modern malware threats, has multiple vectors. So they noted at least four uh, different ways that Raspberry Robin can end up on a system, not just that USB one, but other methods now too. And all of them were ultimately linked with hands-on keyboard actions by an attacker. Uh, They said worms can be noisy and can lead to alert fatigue for socks, but if you don't address them quickly, uh, give worms opportunity to sell access to the affected network which we see pretty often now on the underground of selling access to session cookies, selling access to a botnet to drop whatever you want. Like these days, I feel like a lot of the main uh, major cyber attacks we see, like there are different organizations are responsible for different stages. You have one Uh, responsible for social engineering, one responsible for making the botnet, one responsible for developing ransomware. And someone buys access to all that and deploys the ransomware. That's what the affiliate programs are all about. Really, the affiliates are there to gain access and what they do with that access is, you know, load affiliate ransomware, load affiliate botnet, load. Yeah, so absolutely agree with you. Yep. It's also probably safer for criminals in the same way a kingpin would make all kinds of other people down to the end mule who may not even have much awareness over what was happening do stuff. It gives us an arm's length separation from the, the worst crimes. 100%. Um, so they said at first, Raspberry Robin seemed to have really no purpose, but later evolved to a point where it can be uh, have a devastating impact where deployed. And their ma- basic mitigation suggestions were the typical stuff we always see. So prevent drives from auto running uh, or executing code. Good news is that's disabled by default. Bad news is they've noted a lot of organizations have like legacy group policy configurations that have wow. enabled auto run. I, was, I thought you were going to say some companies still enable it, but that is a surprising one, right? If you just you made your group policy a decade ago when the default was different, you might still have it there. That's a that's probably a good tip. If your group policy hasn't been touched in a while, you should check to make sure if it's really up to date with with today's security practices. And the rest of it was basically boils down to use good endpoint protection and endpoint detection response, like enable tamper prevention and use tools that can identify some of these lull bins activity and the living off the land activity. By the way, random just thing. We, we've commented many times how kind of what I call grayware hacking tools, stuff that are made by researchers. I shouldn't even call them grayware because good guys use them and like them. But we keep on seeing cobalt strike. Uh, but unlike Metasploit, Cobalt Stride is expensive as heck. <laughs> I wonder if it's a cracked version of Cobalt Strike. It just seems it's not unusual to see Metasploit and others. Cobalt Strike is great, by the way. I would see why a, a, a bad threat actor would use it. But uh, it's not cheap. So I wonder if they're cracking it. Oh, I guarantee they are. I mean, speaking of someone that uh, has perused the high seas occasionally. It yeah, is yeah, I've seen it. I've, I've definitely seen it, which is why I ask. <laughs> Although uh, we, we, in real time, our own threat analysts are talking about how cracked cracks are one of the biggest things containing malware nowadays. So I wonder how many threat actors using Cobalt Strike are using the Trojan crack and another threat actor is stealing their victims. Again, speaking with firsthand experience as a teenager in the 2000s, uh, yes, cracked (laughs) software tends to come with a lot of malware on it. (laughs) 
And I guarantee that has not changed. Yep. Uh, but either way, like I recommend checking out the article. It's pretty cool. Microsoft uh, and Red Canary have done some good research on this over the years. And I don't know, it's always interesting. Like I feel like, like you said, USB spread malware, it's not widespread, but it's interesting because it's like, I, it feels it feels different than like network spreading. No, no I like They it. put thought into it. Like they found your address and actually shipped it to you. And that, that's why I think it probably is more targeted and more sophisticated. But it's funny how the threats that don't get widespread may not make the headlines back in May, uh, but they might be the more dangerous. The, the ones that anything that's hands-on probably has a higher chance of succeeding than, than the purely automated ones. Unless there's a really well-known zero day, uh, the automated ones you know, tend to hit barriers here and there. But if they're and doing hands-on, if they're sending USB keys to a specific place, that's the threat actor I would worry the most about because they're looking specifically at you. Get a thumb drive in the mail unsolicited, even if it says it's from like Amazon.com. What if it's from WatchGuard? <laughs> if we start mailing out What, what if we start giving them away at the booth like we have in the past? <laughs> Who wants a 443 branded thumb drive? We'll ship it to you. Maybe we should ask them to bring back thumb drive giveaways and we can use it as a research project and have something benign that shows how many people actually opened the the booby track documents. I um, I would love that as a research project. That is such a massive can of worms that I, that's one way <laughs> I don't I don't think it'd get past legal. I don't think it'd get past legal. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's got to be some way to do it. Like just even it loads up an image or something and we can track like the number of loads on that. But either way, like if a, as soon as a researcher finds that, like that's how you get slapped in the face all over Twitter, <laughs> assuming Elon Musk hasn't destroyed But if a researcher found it, they would see it would be our fun research project and realize we were good guys and just trying to point something out. It would see, <laughs> but there are angry people out there. Anyways. <laughs> Terrible, <laughs> terrible idea, but maybe we'll do it. Who knows? <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any suggestions for future episode topics or questions on today's topics, don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecondEpt. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.